Good afternoon, dear colleagues. It's my pleasure to introduce Professor Dariusz Jemielniak to you on the one hand and Jaroslav Kempvovich on the other hand. I'm very sorry for my very bad uh, pronunciation. You will certainly correct this in a minute. Both of them are Polish by background. Both of them work at Kominsky University in Warsaw. Um, and we haven't met before. Um, the, the reason why we are talking to each other today is an excellent and very interesting paper that I will very briefly present in a minute. But before doing that, let me very briefly present our speakers. So uh, Professor Jemielniak is full professor of organization studies and management at Kominsky University. Uh, and he's also the chair of um, something which is called MINDS, which stands for Management in Networked and Digital Societies, and it's a department at the university. He is also, that's also very interesting to mention, one of the fellows of the Berkman Center for Internet and Society. That's an institution in Harvard. Um, and you might remember that Lawrence Lessig, who is one of the fellow speakers here in this uh, podcast, was quite closely related to that center um, and is still closely related to the center. And he and um, Darius is also, in addition to this, a visiting scholar at MIT. So the other big institution over there in Boston, a visiting scholar at MIT Center for Collective Intelligence. And he is also part of the board of trustees of Wikimedia. He is very active in academia, but also in business and in economics. He's one of the founding partners of quite some influential and important uh, startups um, in Poland. Um, Jaroslav um, is one of the PhD students um, of Darius. So we, we see a very successful collaboration here between the professor and, and, and one of his students, uh, because the paper that we are talking about here did indeed have some impact um, in the academic debate, but also on Twitter in particular and in other areas of social media. And the paper um, has the title AstraZeneca Vaccine Disinf Disinformation on Twitter. And that's not only the title, but it's also the subject. So we are talking about a specific analysis on in how far there is um, and there was disinformation on Twitter when it comes to AstraZeneca, one of the vaccines, and whether or not uh, that has an impact and how it um, and where and from where it comes. Um, some of you might might see that AstraZeneca, uh, one of the uh, vaccines that were quite early available in Europe, um, has decreased significantly in its importance on a daily basis. Uh, many people no longer receive uh, this vaccination. And um, one of the reasons why this might have happened is that there was so much rumor about um, this specific vaccine. All three of us obviously are not virologists. We are no, not experts in vaccines. Uh, we don't know anything about the medical debate behind the different um, uh, assessments of, vaccine, of the different vaccines and whether there are any differences. So this is not what we are talking about today. We are explicitly talking about how rumors um, on vaccines um, emerge and, and whether or not there is um, that, that has an impact on the policy and also on the regulatory level. Darius Jaroslav, thank you so much for coming. Let us perhaps briefly start by, by letting us know how this paper was written, how you start, what the idea, the basic idea at the beginning was, whether there's any further development since you published this paper, which was posted in April 2021. So approximately six months ago, quite some time since then. Let us know what this is about from your perspective, please. 
Uh, I can take take the first uh, uh, the first take on that, and Eroslav, Eroslav I'm sure will add. First of all, the, the paper we, we published as a preprint, but just recently got published in Public Health Journal, which is you know a, a great thing. It is a very well fitting journal, and basically the idea that we had was that we saw that there was a huge debate in the media about uh, AstraZeneca. As you probably remember, there was this issue of blood clots uh, allegedly related to this vaccine. As, as you mentioned, we are not medical experts, so we, we cannot possibly comment on that. But what we can comment on is the public discourse. And in the public discourse, there was quite a lot of negative information about AstraZeneca. So we were very interested in this situation. What is happening when there's so much anticipation, so much discussion about the incoming vaccines, everybody's waiting for them. And then there's you know a bomb, something may be wrong with one of them. So we wanted to analyze how are people reacting on Twitter to, to this particular phenomena? And in particular, what kind of media are being used, whether people who are posting about AstraZeneca are related or not. This was definitely of huge interest to, to me personally. That's why I asked uh, my brilliant PhD student and also an accomplished uh, venture capitalist, Yaroslav Kempovich, Ukrainian by, by, by nationality, uh, who helped me in to gather data, analyze it, and that, that's, that's how, how it went. Mm -hmm. And and how exactly did you do it? Did you simply start a bot collecting tweets on Twitter, or what? What exactly did you do? Yeah, do you want to take that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we used some of the method methods, some of the available libraries to retrospectively collect historical data as well as continuously scraping new data. One of the key differences is that uh, historical data is in a way much more cleared by the Twitter algorithms itself. So uh, a lot of misinformation at some point of the time is already caught. However, the, uh, the, the part of the information that we have been able to identify was uh, not identified by the Twitter uh, misinformation algorithm and therefore stayed in the, our, our data set mm -hmm. for a longer time. So we retrospectively collected the data. Okay, so just to understand this correctly, although Twitter runs its own algorithms to identify misinformation and to delete misinformation on the platform, you were still able to, to collect more than 50,000 tweets retrospectively with AstraZeneca in its subject, of which you assume that they are misinformed. Well, not, not all of them are misinformed. But some of them, some of yes. them, at least, a, a, a given amount, an, an unclear amount of them are misinforming. Correct. Okay. And, and those 51,000 tweets that you collected, all of them had a hashtag, which is AstraZeneca. That was the, the selection criterion, right? Okay, and you would call this a big data analysis in a way, right? <laughs> so perhaps give us a little bit of understanding, additional understanding of what the purpose of collecting such amounts of data is and, and, and what you then did with this data. Yeah, so I can take that. It's, it's not not really such a big data set. I mean, we're dealing with with data sets which which have tens of millions of tweets in in our other projects. But here, it was a very simple thing. There were no more tweets. We collected all of them. Mm. That's that's how it went. That and it's it is sort of big data in a way that we were using tools that are typical for big data analysis. So even for a relatively small data set, given that it contained all hashtag AstraZeneca that remained on Twitter. Uh, it, it definitely analyzes what we're, we're doing. And what we did was basically we used Python as you know, as our mm -hmm. basic language to analyze uh, 
occurrences of links to media. So we were studying what kind of media is mentioned in those tweets. For example, we were curious, is are people who are publishing about AstraZeneca linking to uh, the Guardian, are they linking to Russia Today? This was definitely mm -hmm. you know, something we, we wanted to find out. And we also analyzed the media before the information about uh, the alleged blood clots occurred mm -hmm. and the information after. And above uh, of, of all that, uh, Yaroslav was also able to do the social network analysis, which means that he was trying to analyze whether there is some coercion between the accounts that are seemingly unrelated. But sometimes when you look at the data set, you can see that they are look as if they were coordinating their actions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, um, and the period of time um, of, of which you analyzed the tweets was relatively short. It was somewhere in early spring 2021. Are you still analyzing tweets since then? Even today, yeah, Yaroslav can yeah. tell more about it, but even today we're working on a paper that covers all vaccines and we mm -hmm. on a longer period of time. So we definitely want to go deeper and, and longer compare, for example, is misinformation typical just to AstraZeneca or maybe this is something that is typical of other vaccines too and so yeah. on and so forth. Yeah, and could you give an answer to that question already? So is it typical for AstraZeneca or is it true for all the vaccines? Or don't you, you don't know yet? Uh, Yaroslav, or you don't I want see, to tell yet? I don't know. <laughs> Yaroslav is reluctant to give an answer because as, as a proper scientist, he doesn't want to jump to conclusions before our research. Okay. okay. But I can tell you, I can, mm -hmm. but I can tell you, you know, I, I'm a full professor, so I can, <laughs> I can <laughs> also speak ex cathedra. And, and from my, my intuition is, my intuition is that discourse about vaccines is really, really full of a lot of misinformation. This is what we are observing in many different topics. We, we have a large project studying anti-vaccination sentiments. And this is a topic that is super, super full of misinforming and disinforming tweets. So I would be mm -hmm. very surprised if other vaccines were not really full of it too. Yeah. Okay. But then let's come back to the to the paper because this is already something which is out there in the public. So it's uh, reliable and it's, we can discuss it. So the, the main outcome of this, in my words, was is that there is plenty of misinformation on Twitter. Plenty of this misinformation is coming from bots and plenty of the misinformation can be re or is related to some media sources coming from let's nations or areas possibly having an interest in, in the matter. <laughs> let's put it like this. Um, would you agree? And would you go a little bit more into detail if you agree? Yeah, also, why don't you take this one? Yeah, so uh, to start from the end, uh, uh, concerning the regions, mm -hmm. um, definitely that there was some uh, significant uh, in influx of coordinated activity from the uh, perspective of uh, Pakistan-Indian relations. Mm -hmm. uh, looking at the, um, I'm sorry, Bangladesh. Uh, mm -hmm. Apologies for that. Uh, looking at the data, data we found that uh, there was a large amount of coordinated activity that seemingly at the first glance the account were not coordinated. However, the text that they used, the hashtag they used, the combination of, of the word they used according to our analysis of similarity showed that they, the messages were more or less the same to a large mm -hmm. extent uh, to, to the threshold that we have applied, uh, which was again very high. 
So uh, we can categorize them at the same. So they coordinated the same message to amplify it uh, visibility on Twitter, mm -hmm. which was mostly concerned with the um, donation of the vaccines from India uh, and, and specifically Serum Institute to the Bangladesh in order to support the vaccination activities in, in the Bangladesh. So uh, it, it was in a way a promotion activity However, uh, taking into account the uh, research into the vaccine diplomacy and the um, and discussion covered in the media, it looked very much as an attempt to amplify the, the political influence over the uh, over the Bangladeshi state from India. Mm -hmm. But you also have another uh, conclusion because, of course, Bangladesh and India are important, but they are not that important for the European market, uh, whereas there is another statement in your conclusions which is very important to the European market, and I may quote now from your conclusions um, where you write, I quote, Popular disinformation tweets are spread not only by individual powerful activists and conspiracy websites, but also by state-owned media supported by networks of disinformation farms. Given the fact that Russia has a heavy interest in promoting its own Sputnik V vaccine, both for economic and political reasons, the activity of Russia today in posting often negative information about AstraZeneca may be perceived as part of a larger campaign potentially aimed at discrediting the vaccine." End of quote. Uh, so this is, of course, uh, very interesting for Europeans because this is quite what, I mean, this is what, what happened then in April and, and since then, right? That the AstraZeneca vaccine got more and more, at least in my perspective, discredited and, and left more and more the market. At the moment, at least in Austria, there are more or less no people any longer being vaccinated with AstraZeneca. So my question here is now, how did you find that out again? So again, a, a little bit of question about the methodology behind it. And then also whether you think that there is additional information available that might also lead into this direction. And then finally, whether you think that there should be some political slash legal debate about this, um, about this outcome. Yeah, just uh, just to clarify, we we didn't catch anybody red-handed. You know, we there, yeah. there was no smoking gun, but let me tell you, there was a lot of smoke. Mm -hmm. So quite clearly, we 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 are not claiming Russia today was definitely misinforming. What we're mm -hmm. saying is that, seen altogether, the fact that they were publishing predominantly negative information about AstraZeneca could be perceived as a campaign because misinformation is not just one article. Misinformation is oftentimes the proportions between mm. positive, negative information as related to the reality. If the reality is, for example, that somebody died after AstraZeneca shot, mm. statistically, it's not surprising. People die all the time, right? Mm. But if you will write articles every single day, somebody died after AstraZeneca, after, after AstraZeneca it will create an image in the, in the mind of the reader that these two are related and it will disproportionately uh, basically distort the reality. Uh, so I would say it's definitely against the typical um, uh, information mission of any news agency. So your, your question is basically, 
related to a very complex issue because Asazonic, as you probably recall, also was at odds with the European Union, European Commission about deliveries. There was a lot of brouhaha, you know, contracts, you know, suing, going to court. So I would say that the backlash is probably mm -hmm. not just related to misinformation. It's also related to, to the business relations with this company. Mm -hmm. And obviously, I wouldn't be surprised if the these two were quite very much conflated in a way that, you know, AstraZeneca, if they were playing fair and square, you know, hand in hand with the European Commission as the European Commission perceived their contract rather than at odds with them, I think they probably would probably be still in the market to some extent. But what I find super interesting and it's super important for many other topics is that from the market perspective, AstraZeneca is clearly on a very similar shelf a Sputnik vaccine. We know the technology is very similar. We even know there, there are allegations that the technology itself for Sputnik has been appropriated from AstraZeneca. It is a similar price range. It is a similar technology. So from this point of view, Sputnik and AstraZeneca are business-wise in, in a very direct competition. Hmm. If a medium, a state-sponsored, medium a medium that is often accused of being basically a tool of state propaganda and i'm not commenting on that we were quoting research that shows that it, it, it is so if this medium publishes a lot of really negative information about astrazeneca and very little positive information about astrazeneca one has to ask a question is there somebody who made the decision or is it random if it's random we can speak of bad journalism but really, really bad journalism. If it's not random, well, then you have misinformation uh, campaign. Yeah, but the interesting part for me, Darius, if I may uh, add to this, is not so much that that there are media that are disinforming, that that is well known, right? And there's plenty of media information out there which is disinforming. The interesting part is that this is then used on another platform, which is now Twitter in this case, by seemingly neutral third parties trying to share this uh, this media content that is disinforming and to build up another category of disinformation, which is, of course, much more powerful than the first one. Because if you have this in your Twitter timeline three times a day from different people whom you trust, it's a completely different story from just one media article somewhere. So this is, in my view, the important part, for me, at least as a lawyer here, the important part, because it triggers the question how we need to deal with, uh, with platforms and platform moderation and fake news on plat or disinformation on platforms. Do you have any comment on this? I have a quick comment. Maybe Yaroslav will, will help me here as well. But one thing to really keep in mind here is that if this is so, and very clearly the phenomenon of social networks really being the distribution channel is, is happening, it's a fact. If it is so, then analyzing just the news in any news outlet is not enough anymore. Mm -hmm. Because we can imagine a news outlet that is publishing a very balanced point of view, but is spending a lot of resources to promote on the social media on the one side. Uh, if you do not look at the social media, you will not even be able to observe that this particular outlet is not objective, is very skewed towards one, one line. And I think this is the future. This is what is going to happen because mm -hmm. very often there is a hidden agenda, but you want to present yourself as objective. You want to present yourself as weighing all, you know, as proportionately reflecting the reality. 
So the best way to do it would be to yeah publish articles about everything, but you know put quite a lot of tools and effort and, and resources behind promoting the view they want to have promoted. Absolutely, and this is also very haunting in a way because it's so prob. I would assume that it's so time consuming and complex to identify these tendencies than on the platforms. So Yaroslav, perhaps give us some insight if if I may ask you to how much work is it to do such an analysis? How much time did it take you? How how long? So is is it reasonable to believe that one could do this for every single problem that might be politically relevant? I believe it's possible to algorithmically com compute the the method to do it uh, proactively, and I, I believe that uh, platforms have many of those methods already applied. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, adding a bit on, on the previous question, uh, on, on terms of what what platforms can do and what what uh, the uh, what we need uh, to observe the, the, and to police this phenomenon better. Uh, I believe that the coverage in, in the non-crucial regions for the platform, I mean the uh, Middle East, Eastern Europe, other languages, LATAM, is crucial for better policing, especially in other languages, as we've seen in, in the, some of the latest media reports that the Facebook and Twitter are not very good at detecting the misinformation, especially in the other languages. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Coming back to the question, uh, yes, I believe it's absolutely uh, feasible to, to, to do this proactively. Uh, the uh, bank of the, the, the majority of the time that this really needed is, is to detect the um, necessary hit points or, or, or hashtags or, uh, and to collect the data. Mm -hmm. And very often those data are somehow not representative small and so on so we were we were very lucky of astrazeneca being a very large uh, data set uh, yeah. as uh, uh, in general also there's a lot of stream of data uh, however yeah, oftentimes it, it um, the majority of time is spent on the actually understanding the discourse and identifying the, the points that can be extracted yeah, you also mentioned one of the limitations, however, of this analysis, which is the language issue, right? So yeah. also you in your in your paper, you needed to focus on on those tweets which are in English. So the majority of the tweets dealing with AstraZeneca in this period of time were not in English. So nobody knows what, <laughs> what was behind them, right? So so that makes it perhaps even at least for as you if i get you correctly you say that the the platforms would manage to master to to identify this misinformation on their platform but there is a, a language issue and i would say now from the outside perspective there's not only the language issue but there's also the computing power issue or manpower issue because not too many people have so much free time to invest their their time in chasing what's happening on a social platform. So what is the role of the public then, or the academic public in order to, to monitor what's happening there? Or do we need to leave all this to the platforms themselves? Before, before I give the floor to you, Yaroslav, I wanna quickly comment on that because there, it's a yeah. complex issue. One, first of all, language is not so important in many analyses. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you analyze coordination, we don't care all that much about the content. That's we only true. care of about how, how, which accounts are uh, basically colluding. Uh, mm -hmm. But there's one important cave out of our research. Our research was 
by by design retroactive mm-hmm. and we, it took us weeks and weeks to analyze something that was happening so the damage was already done mm-hmm. it's very easy to analyze misinformation of a certain topic after a while but if you consider the big picture the big picture is the damage is happening this minute this hour people are reading it and they go on they do not come back to tweets from from weeks back mm-hmm. so from this point of view, sure, the research community and the European Union actually spending quite a lot of money on research in this area. The research community is able to do research, but is not really able to develop viable counter action methods that mm-hmm. would be in real time. And I think mm-hmm. the social networks are super capable and could be doing this, but you have to consider this is against their business model. What they actually live on is information that is causing people to react, that is engaging people. Very often, this will be something that is contrary to their beliefs or contrary to the common knowledge. And mm-hmm. by definition, it's misinformation. Disinformation is more engaging than regular, same old, same old mundane facts. Mm-hmm. But sorry, also, if I cut you off there. I absolutely share your opinion to the So um, nothing to add here for myself. Okay. But then, Darius, I mean, the, the question that pops up from my legal perspective on this is then how to deal with this. So what, what should the European Union do then? And, and do, you, do, you, do you have any, any recommendations coming out of your, your outcomes on, on what we need to do from a regulatory perspective? Yes, and I have a second question then, which is, did you receive any feedback leading into a regulatory debate coming out of the paper? So... Uh... The, the actual feedback that we received was, was mostly from the media uh, and one, one feedback from a website which we described as spreading misinformation was very vocally objecting to that, which is quite funny because, you know, this was a website that had the most bizarre pieces of misinformation, you know, and pretty... And, and that's pretty, not really relevant because this is not the important part of the paper, right? It's definitely. not not really relevant. Yeah. Definitely. But re- regarding my personal opinion on regulation, and as a non-lawyer, you know, I might mm-hmm. be very, very badly positioned here to, to give advice, but I think we need to think about the cause and effect. If you see damage, the damage is done by the social networks. It's, it's undisputable. It's mm-hmm. already proven in hundreds of papers. If we see the damage, why there is no responsibility for the damage? The, the legal shields that are used currently, I, I think, are based on anachronistic approach, anachronistic view of what the social networks are. Mm-hmm. They are they're not the traditional media. They are, well, there's something new. And this something new has to be defined by law, but also from the perspective of the damage it's doing. Mm-hmm. If there is damage, there should be responsibility. The responsibility for stopping the spread of misinformation. And I don't care if they are doing something. I, I only care if they do enough. And they're not doing enough, even though they have enormous resources. My best guess is that the social networks like Facebook and, and YouTube, Twitter, could stop misinformation if they really want it. But it's not really the top priority. It's maybe priority number five. Priority number one is engagement, views, clicks. As long as we as the society, the law, do not expect anything better, we shouldn't blame them. They are playing the game as it's designed. So we mm-hmm. need to design the game in such a way that are responsible. Mm-hmm. But Darius, I mean, one of the interesting parts here, in my view at least, is that a lot of the tweets, I would assume, that had AstraZeneca with a hashtag attached to them were not wrong in the sense of that they were misinforming, right? It's probably 
I mean, there were cases with, uh, with, with cloths and all this, and probably the impact comes from, you know, you have this 10 times in your timeline and two of them are obviously stupid and three of them are extreme and three of them are somewhere mainstream and all this builds up an opinion then in a way, right? So what, what should the platform then do? Simply delete all the, the extreme one and leave the, the others? Or and, and, and obviously this has a strong, very, very strong fundamental rights imp implication, which is freedom of speech and freedom of opinion, freedom of information, data protection, plenty of other fundamental rights coming with this. So what exactly, how should they navigate through this? Is this, is this reasonable? Yeah, but, but there's a lot of low-hanging fruit already, which is much less extreme than, than trying to cherry-pick the, the nuanced views which are reporting negative sides. I mean, if even if the allegation that vaccinations are used to spread chips that Bill Gates will be using mm. to control your minds, even if this was weeded out and tweets like this exist, mm. this would already be a good step, but weed it out before it does damage. So not mm. one day, one week after, but mm. as it's happening, there should mm. be a task force, algorithmic AI plus a team of people who are combating this. And what, what the, the social networks are doing now, is pretty much it, but with two little resources, they should be scaled up a couple of uh, orders of magnitude. So when you we, when you come to the problem as you defined, that we need to also spread not just disinformation, but also misinformation, yeah, sure we should, but there's so many steps that we need to take that we know what already are and they are not done. I would park this conversation about you know the the problem of proportions and misinforming us for a later debate because as you just said, there's quite a number of considerations about a free speech, about who's actually responsible, and so on and so forth. Some if somebody's a, a newspaper, if there's a newspaper agency uh, with professional journalists hired, is this really the responsibility of the social network? to make sure that it proportionally bumps up tweets that are uh, representing a proportional view, I think it would be very difficult to, to arrange. But there's mm -hmm. quite a number of things they can do. The most popular tweet that is still out there that we found was absolutely conspiracy theory, very clear, very black and white picture. So even if we start with that, it will already be an improvement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, did you receive any reactions from any platform on the paper after it was published? No. Um, no, mm. not really. Well, again, I mean, platforms see papers like this come out every month. Mm. And what they do is basically try to wait it out. So I think unless there's some regulatory move, and I, I, I don't blame the platforms, I blame the, the regulators. Unless there's some very strong regulatory approach, I don't think it'll change. Mm -hmm. It's astonishing because, I mean, some of the tweets about your paper were very, very popular in April and May. Some of them received several thousand retweets. So the, the topic was very much on the agenda, at least on Twitter, I would say. Which brings me to the question whether you are doing similar research with other social networks or, or is Twitter the only one that you're interested in? Why don't you take that? So, uh, general Twitter is the most accessible, uh, taking into account the, the structure. Which is also an interesting point already, because there might be an incentive for platforms of not being accessible, right? So, well, well I, I believe stop making people talk about you. <laughs> 
that comes a bit from design of it, right? Yeah. So uh, the, then the micro messaging, uh, limited by the number of signs, definitely brings uh, availability of a lot of different opinions, even though structuring threads. Uh, mm. It's very easy to share your thoughts. It's very very easy to share the information. Therefore, as a data sort, it, it looks to be a very uh, consistent and uh, very easy to work with. Mm. Uh, so uh, that, that's why general Twitter is, is, is the, the easiest way to go. We are exploring some of the direction with uh, other networks, especially uh, the closed messaging ones like Telegram, mm -hmm. uh, however, the uh, and definitely Facebook. However, the availability of methods of, of uh, accessibility of the information down there is uh, so. So there is basically a very few uh, methods to access it, uh, mm -hmm. which is obviously also a very big problem in the research of, of the misinformation online. Mm -hmm. uh, the Facebook at some point severely limited accessibility for research purposes mm -hmm. because of uh, well-known scandals, uh, starting with Cambridge Analytica uh, and so on. However, it affected the quality of research and availability of, of, uh, in, of insight from academic standpoint uh, to very uh, large amount. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and that brings me to one of my last questions, if I may, if, whether both of you could comment on how how difficult it is to access the necessary information for research like the one that you are undertaking, both from a technical and a regulatory point of view, because also from a regulatory point of view, it's quite some burdensome to get access to these data if you really want to follow the rules coming from the platforms. So would you would you see any need for change here? Uh, maybe I'll start with the regulatory part and, and Jaroslav can comment on the technical one. I think it is uh, outrageous that there are no modalities for researchers to do research. Hmm. This is the element of public control. And the social networks are getting rid of the oversight of public control by saying, oh, we are so, you know, we're protecting your private data. No, you're not. They're not protecting the public in any way, they are cutting off some marketing companies by promoting their own services, by the way, but they are cutting off researchers. And this is this is bad because mm -hmm. if we do not have public oversight, you know, uh, they, they, can do, they can do whatever they want. So I, I would say that the social networks should start with making special privileged access for researchers, allowing mm -hmm. to basically to see what is happening. Without this, even the regulators will not be able to uh, accurately see what is happening. Yeah. Technically, I mean, technically, Arosov can comment on that. It's a, it's a, an uphill battle. The, 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 the access is changing all the time. Uh, the modalities, even today, we were discussing how to, how to get some sorts of data, and it's getting increasingly difficult. Mm -hmm. But let's stick briefly, if I may, with the regulatory part. Would you, would you? So, is this a call for, for a legal obligation now to open? access to social media data for independent research? Absolutely. Period? And yeah, okay. Absolutely, period. with of course, with some cavas, because we need to make sure that it's not a door, it's not a gateway for marketing scams, it's not a gateway for poor research. So there should be some oversight, probably mm -hmm. academic boards, committees that would approve such access. But nevertheless, if something is public discourse, much more than newspapers, it mm -hmm. has to be regulated how do we even know what is happening there 
if mm. nobody's actually looking at their hands. Mm. And isn't it astonishing that this hasn't happened really in the last 15 years or so, because it's in Europe at least? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but to be perfectly honest, look at the cookies regulation. Mm. <laughs> when, it, when it was introduced, it was already way too late and so lame that it mm. is just a nuisance right now. Mm. So mm. I, I don't have high expectations here. Yeah, so then perhaps, perhaps Yaroslav, you have higher expectations when it comes to the technical solutions or the technical developments, or would you also be as frustrated as Darius is on, on, <laughs> on this perspective? I think I'm the, the, the main source of frustration from, mm -hmm. from uh, our duo uh, in research. So uh, this is very much uphill battle. So the, um, there are several uh, open source methods to work with Twitter developed by uh, Opsint community, which is, which is very interesting. So open source intelligence communities that uh, all stuff does, do they that part of the independent research online. Uh, however, uh, the algorithms, the APIs, the, the endpoints on Twitter are constantly changing, but they are trying to limit the availability of data, especially retrospectively, even though they uh, platforms that they, they do offer some kind of uh, added functionality and added data access. However, uh, at, uh, very often the, the amount of the data that are needed for a larger research employing big data methods, uh, that those are not available in non-commercial plans, right? So. Mm -hmm. Uh, the um, the cost of acquiring the data uh, from from the platforms is is also very high, uh, and the platforms included it in their business model. So basically, the the fees for academia are are also very high. Mm -hmm. And just to add that once again, there are platforms which are not really interested in having an independent academic oversight and are much more restrictive than Twitter might be in, in their business model and, and also in, in not allowing then um, academics to get access. So Twitter is probably, as you said, the one that is the most transparent here. <laughs> if you compare it with Telegram or Parler or whatever um, out there, it's getting much more, or, or, or WhatsApp, uh, it's getting much more difficult than probably, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah. So thank you so much, Darius and Ryaoslav. This is, it's mind blowing and it's, it's haunting and it's, but at the same time, it's also really, really interesting to listen to you and to this also, and in particular from a regulatory point of view. Thank you for, for sharing this with us. Um, at the, and I would really appreciate to hear more about the follow-up studies um, that you are, uh, that you are making at the moment. All the best to the two of you. Uh, thank you for coming and thank you to our audience for listening to this. Please stay in touch with us, uh, stay interested and in particular stay or become as quickly as healthy as possible. All the best to all of you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye.